0: Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Rosen, founder and partner at Commerce Ventures. Dan, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me so much. No problem. So to kick things off, can we just start a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Sure. So I am the founder of Commerce Ventures.
1: We are an early stage venture firm focused on investing in tech for retail and financial services. But my background is pretty much all in venture capital. So I've been investing in, you know, startup companies of all stages for the last 23 years across three different firms, three different larger firms. And I started this firm about 10 years ago. And today Commerce Ventures is thirteen employees, uh, mostly based in San Francisco, and we are, you know, kind of investing out of our fourth fund now. We have about three hundred million dollars of assets under management and invested in a little over a hundred companies to date. And we're fortunate that many of our companies have gone on to grow into category leaders. And so excited to talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of how our investment process works and, you know, kind of any lessons that we can pass along to folks who might be interested.
0: How have you seen venture evolve over the past 23 years? If you can maybe take us back to 23 years ago and paint a picture of what it looked like then compared to now, I think that could be interesting to some of the early stage founders listening in who are you know early on in their startup journey.
1: Sure. Back in 2000, I mean, first of all, we were in the sort of sunset period of the dot-com era when I joined the industry. And what it meant to start a business back then was fairly different. Almost every business was relatively capital inefficient. There was no cloud computing at the time. Any software you wanted to build, you, you pretty much had to host yourself. Many companies that I was investing in back then were actually hardware businesses, which were extremely expensive to build and cost a lot of money to both build the technology, but also bring it to market. So you know, the building of businesses was much more concentrated in terms of the number of startups back then, because it required a fair bit of capital. And the industry of venture capital was much, much more concentrated than it is today. So there was actually a, a fairly small number of allocators of capital to startups or venture firms, if you will. Um, and they were primarily located in the Bay Area. And the next closest market was Boston, where I was actually located. But there really weren't many other venture capital you know, kind of markets in the United States, um, and even really around the world that were at, at very significant scale back when I was getting started. So completely different industry structure, raising capital was really difficult you had to have getting access to investors was very challenging and the pedigree required to raise capital required you to have worked at some very successful startup or a large tech company which it to some extent is similar to today but the companies that you would have had to have worked at would have been instead of you know Google Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or something like that like it actually would have been you know like Intel or Cisco or another company of the era so Different companies, different pedigrees, much less capital efficient than, you know, kind of more modern venture capital and a much more concentrated
0: ecosystem. And something else I want to ask about there as well, as you mentioned, you're based in SF. As we were talking about there in the pre-interview, I'm here as well. So we're neighbors. What are your views on the importance of being in San Francisco and Silicon Valley for founders? Do you tend to only look to back startups that are based here or are you investing globally? What's your view there? We've been investing in companies across the country since the
1: start of our, our firm. Many of our portfolio companies started in the Bay Area, but many started in other areas. Whether that's right in the middle of the country, we have a number of Midwestern-based companies in our portfolio, whether that be New York, whether it be the Boston area, some in the Southeast. But we've also made some investments outside of the U.S. as well, especially more recently as our expertise has built in specific themes that we've had success investing at in the U.S., we've invested in smaller ways in companies that are positioned maybe to be the category leaders in those themes in high growth emerging markets you know think about you know the african continent think about asia you know think about latin america so you know we're definitely not constrained to investing just in the bay area with all of that said i do think the bay area has the strongest network effect for the tech startup ecosystem broadly and while we're in a period of adjustment and probably still in a period of recovery, from being honest, I do think eventually the primacy of the Bay Area will be as clear as it was in the past, again, to the tech ecosystem. Even for other you know, kind of markets in the United States that have grown substantially with the expansion of the tech ecosystem, there really is no other city that is even close to the amount of funding and startup activity that the Bay Area produces. So are the media reports
0: exaggerated then, it sounds like? Silicon Valley is not
1: dead. I think the media reports that San Francisco is a challenging city to live in. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. There are a lot of the sort of retail level experiences and dynamics in the city of San Francisco. This suggests the city is facing its worst challenges maybe ever. Like many other cities, office space is an issue as well. Like a lot of office buildings are sitting unoccupied. But what I've heard from experts in the area is actually that problem is bigger in other markets. Maybe the problem is biggest in Manhattan, but I'm not an office commercial real estate expert. What I would say is, you know, I continue to see a ton of activity here in the Bay Area. And, you know, we're looking at a number of companies that are just getting started at inception phase and they're getting started here. They're getting started here because the founders live here. The companies they used to work for are here. And the investors, by and large, are based here. So that network effect is really difficult to compete against. And so while in a concentrated part of the city, some of the retail experience, the, the street level experience that you'd have as a visitor, even as a person going to work, is not ideal. I actually think over time, you know, it's really difficult to see this market not recovering in a
0: really strong way. Promising to hear. Now, let's switch gears a bit and dive a bit deeper into the fund. So I know you had mentioned $300 million there. Could you also share some of the bigger names that you've invested in that the audience may know? Sure. So as I mentioned, we invest in technology companies
1: serving the retail and financial services ecosystems. Our very first investment, fortunately, was a company called Marketa, which has gone on to be successful and, and, and has gone public. In that same first fund, we also invested in a company called Bill.com, which also was fortunate enough to go public. Both companies have had tremendous success and are generating in the neighborhood of a billion dollars of revenue run rate these days. So really interesting compelling platform businesses, Marketa in the card issuance and payment space and bill.com really in the B2B payments and accounts payable automation software area. So those are two names that people may know if they know the fintech ecosystem or just follow, you know, kind of tech more broadly. But over time we've been fortunate to be able to invest in a number of companies that have proven their leadership in specific themes or categories. For instance, I'm on the board of a company in the digital identity verification space called Socure. They actually just in the news recently because they just made their first acquisition of another startup since becoming a startup themselves. And so that's a really exciting company that's that's really grown into market leadership in that digital identity space. I'm also on the board of a company called Kin. Kin is a category leader in the homeowners insurance space specifically for catastrophic weather affected markets like Florida and coastal regions. So, you know again, those may be names that people know, but maybe not, but those are some of the companies that that come to mind
0: and I'm sure over the last twenty three years, you've interacted with and spent a lot of time with some incredible founders and some very successful founders. Are there any traits that you see are common in these very successful founders? Like are there any patterns that you recognize from your interactions with them? Oh, totally, yeah, so. First off, I'm generally looking for, we're
1: generally looking for, one is generally looking for uh, folks who have relevance to the problem that they're pursuing a solution for. So, you know, coming to the opportunity with some relevance is usually pretty helpful. But, you know, by and large, we want to see a founder who has vision, right? I mean, so like I see an opportunity or I see a problem that's really big, and by solving it, I can build a big business. Being able to look at the world that way in terms of problems and solutions. Is pretty important. And like being able to think ahead to a future state of a market is really important. So the first thing is vision. But then you have to add to that, like, I need to be able to persuade people of my vision one, that it's right and that it's compelling. And then I need to persuade them to give me money or to join my cause and, you know, kind of get underpaid in exchange for some equity uh, in their early days. So that sort of charisma and ability to be persuasive as it pertains to recruiting people and capital is another critical skill. I'd say the third one that comes to mind is is just persistence. Every one of my really successful portfolio companies and I define success as you've reached call it, you know, kind of nine figures of run rate or more. For every one of those businesses, they either had to pivot at least once in the early days or they struggled to raise money at some point in their journey or both. So success is really for founders about not giving up. In those moments where things are really, really challenging, where you just have no idea what you're doing, you have to just sort of figure it out. You have to build through to the, the state of the market that you need to get to. You need to you know be resourceful and you know just knock as many doors as it takes in order to find the money you need. But ultimately, that all comes back to that one word of persistence. So that's probably one of the most important unifying characteristics. So vision, charisma, persistence, I would say those are probably
0: three. And on the the vision point you mentioned there, you know dealing with the problem, are you always looking for someone who's you know been maybe a practitioner, they've experienced the problem firsthand and then they've built a solution from there? Or do you ever back people who are complete outsiders, they've just observed something in the market that they want to solve and then they come to you and say, hey, here's the problem that I want to solve. Do you ever have situations like that? or is it always someone who's you know dealt with that problem in their day-to-day lives? It's very often the case that you're investing in somebody who isn't
1: coming specifically from the space that they're trying to build a company in, but they're typically showing up with characteristics that suggest to you that they can scope a problem and the opportunity. And so it'd be more likely that they would have built something in the past either as a founder or as maybe they built a product from scratch inside of a larger company or even in you know a parallel in a different type of business maybe they started you know a new business line for a completely unrelated type of company just somebody who's able to start from zero that's pretty important is it ideal for them to have relevance in the segment or the theme that you're focused on i think it often is but it's by no means Completely exclusionary if they do not. What you're really looking for is somebody who has that vision and then persuades you that they're willing to do whatever is required and able to do whatever is required in order to achieve it.
0: When they come in and talk to you about vision, how far out do you want them to be looking? Like, do you want them to come in and say, like, here's my vision for what this is going to look like in 20 years? Or do you need them to like scale it back into like a three-year vision, then a five-year vision, a 10-year vision? Like, what's that general view there?
1: There's a lot of different ways to think about vision, right? One is the sort of vision of like the market, like when this solution is in place. How will companies who use it or rely on it function differently? How will the industry function differently? How will consumers interact with those companies in a different way? So that's sort of one piece, which is sort of a nebulous time scale. Sure, if you're talking about self-driving cars or personal area aerial vehicles, like that's a very futuristic vision of the world. But like in most cases, we're talking about automating some business process. You know, we're investing in, you know, we think of sometimes as sleepy areas of the financial services and retail ecosystems. So like some of it's like, you know, hard to visualize, but like a lot of it, you can sort of understand what that future state would look like if somebody explains the vision to you. The bigger question is the vision for what the product would need to look like in order to solve a problem that exists and then how would you get it to market like where would you start to land early customers so there's a specificity of what you would do you know both in terms of product but then also taking that product and confirming that there is product market fit right getting that those signals of demand and so i bring that back to vision because actually you need to have somebody who has like a plan that is multi-stage in nature and includes A lot of things that aren't reality yet today. And that in a lot of ways that the sort of practical vision is really important in addition to the big vision of like, here's the future state of the world. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. How many pitches do you see per month? Would you say if you had to guess? Great question. I would guess 20 to 30. It used to be more probably, but once you build a portfolio and you're working with a bunch of portfolio companies, you have a little bit less service area. To, uh, to spend all your time on new investment pitches. And actually that's a part of building an organization and having colleagues. And so I may come into a first pitch or I might come into you know, a second meeting with that company after one of my colleagues has, has already met with them. But yeah, I'd guess 20 to 30 new pitches
0: a month. From those pitches, are there any like common red flags that you see that just make you say, no, this is not a deal that we're going to pursue? Sure, it's easy to exclude companies that are just not in
1: our area of focus. Mm-hmm. So a company building a medical device, uh, which surprisingly I get a lot of emails about, we're just, there isn't any version of events where we would invest in that business. So one is like, does it fit with our sector focus or not? If it does not, it's clear exclusion. If we believe that the people involved have a moral or ethical deficiency, it's an easy exclusion. That's often difficult to discern from a first meeting, but sometimes sometimes you're able to figure out quickly how you would get to that sort of information. And if you get a sense that that is the case, then you engage as soon as you you have that sense. I think, you know, folks who are not terribly collaborative are often the types of opportunities where you, you sort of disengage pretty quickly. And it's not always because the things we would suggest or the ways in which we would try to help, you know, kind of are the right things. It's more just because this is a long and windy journey that founders go on and that, you know, we try to go on with them as their teammates and partners. And if you just don't feel like you have a very collaborative, constructive relationship, life's kind of too short. And oftentimes if people aren't coachable, if they aren't open to feedback, you're not going to be able to impact the success. And so you're kind of just writing a check. And if you're just writing a check, what distinguishes you from any other person writing a check. So generally speaking, you know, we would sort of steer clear from of those sorts of
0: situations as well. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io/podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And how do you differentiate yourself compared to other venture firms? Obviously there's a lot of venture funds out there today. You know, if a founder, if I were, you know, speaking to a founder that you've invested in, like what would they tell me like the reason why they want to work with you and they're excited to work with you? I'd like to think that they would tell you that we're distinctly
1: knowledgeable in the sector we're focused on. So, being Participants in the financial services ecosystem rather than analysts of it or observers of it. You know, I think it's that distinction, right? Like that we understand how pieces fit together in a way that would be difficult to do if you weren't operating in the space, if you weren't as scope focused as we are. We've structured the whole firm around this sector of focus, and it's everything from where we source. Our capital, our investors, capital which includes large strategic corporations, Fortune 500 companies that are in our sector, to very strategic individuals, people who have run some of those large companies, but also successful entrepreneurs, including some of the ones in our portfolio who have come back and said, "Hey, we really believe in this model. We'd love to invest some money into your next fund if if you'd let us." And you know, building that ecosystem ends up being super instrumental to being able to not just source interesting opportunities. But also perform due diligence and, and analyze themes, and then you know, kind of ultimately help our portfolio companies once we make those investments by leveraging the network that we have. In that answer, I also just mentioned another piece, which is pretty critical, which is I mentioned themes. Mm-hmm. A lot of firms talk about themes, but we don't believe it's possible as a sector-focused firm to invest without being thematic. And our theme process is pretty highly defined, and it means that you know we go very, very deep into areas that they could be, you know, popular sound bites for other people, or they could be areas that, you know, kind of another venture firm, even another sector focused venture firm might really not have spent any time at all. But the distinction there is really that, you know, kind of we're asking our partners, you know, these large corporates, these individuals, and even looking, you know, at trends and startups, like what are the big problems that nobody's paying attention to? What are the opportunities that if you brought a new solution to market, like you could unlock. And so, you know, some of those might be, you know, exciting, you know, and sexy, you know, kind of, you know, gen AI for whatever, but more often than not, they're really boring, sleepy sounding areas that don't get the same attention that some of the broader mainstream and less sector focused investment does.
0: What are some of those themes that you're looking at right now that you're excited about They're gonna sound super boring
1: but we generally love system of record opportunities so you know kind of anytime when there's an opportunity to upgrade the a core system of record we think that's exciting like we just went through a pretty extensive analysis of next generation loan servicing systems so that gives you a sense for like some of the less you know sort of broadly exciting areas that that we tend to look at but you know my colleagues who focus on you know tech for the retail ecosystem have been looking at innovations in travel and hospitality. We are doing the requisite analysis of how Gen AI will and can change areas of retail and financial services. I would say the jury is very much out on that analysis because first of all, everybody's doing that analysis for their own areas of focus. And it does still feel like the horizontal opportunities in generative AI are way more fast growth and exciting than the verticalized applications of the technology. But But yeah, no, I mean, I'd say there's a whole bunch of really sleepy, interesting opportunities that are in our backlog of themes to look at next. And they'll probably have to do with payments or core systems of record inside of banking or financial services.
0: And given the state of the market today, what are the conversations like with your portfolio companies and and the founders that you work closely with? What are those conversations like? And what are you advising them to be doing right now? Well, first of all, this market's
1: You know, it's confusing, it's dynamic, it is not one thing to all people. It's also been, we've been sort of in this shift of market environment for, you know, over 12 months, you know, for those of us who've, I think, been, you know, kind of living in it. And so 12 months ago, we were having a lot of important, difficult conversations with our founders about the oncoming slowdown. And you know kind of where people could and especially where you know our best founders saw it the same way folks made pretty meaningful changes to their operating plans in order to preserve cash you know where they could and if they needed more money develop plans to raise more money in ways that they could to make sure they had enough runway to get to key milestones so if you sort of rewind 12 months. The last 12 months has been a lot around, you know, a lot of working with companies around the portfolio to make sure they had the runway they needed to reach the next funding round, if you will, or profitability. And, you know, I feel really fortunate to say that like most of the companies I work directly with have been able to do that. I'm sure we will lose some number of companies in the portfolio, you know, kind of in a way that relates to this tougher funding environment. But by and large, we've been pretty fortunate thus far. But I think the market it's going to continue to be difficult, but I think it's actually feels like it's starting to get a little bit better. Meaning not that people's scrutiny is any less, not that valuations are suddenly gonna get more, you know, insane or unrealistic, but just that investment feels like it's starting to happen again at a pace that is closer to a healthy steady state. It's early in that, you know, sort of return to normal, but like it feels like it's starting to happen.
0: Was this the worst slowdown you've seen in your career over the past 23 years? Not even close. What was the worst one in
1: 2008? No, no, no. It was for sure 2000. In late 2000, early 2001, things literally went to like zero. Like, I mean, of course they didn't go completely to zero because there was always follow-ons and stuff like that. But like the firm I was at back then, I was in the direct investing group of of a large venture and private equity firm called HarborVest, which invests both in funds and in companies. And the direct investing part of that business, we literally decided not to make a new investment for, I want to say it was like 18 months. So yeah. And by the way, we were not alone in the industry. There were a lot of firms back then. I mean, if you remember, I like started off by saying it was a fairly concentrated industry, which means there weren't that many firms. And a lot of firms had that same mindset of like, I'm not making new investments for a little while. So it was dark days for the venture industry back then.
0: Did you ever have any points in those early days where you thought, "Eh, maybe I shouldn't have a career in venture? Those were the days. So it used to be that the hardest part
1: about a venture job was getting one because there were so few of them. And so if you got one, like you were just wanted to stay in the industry and conventional wisdom had been, once you're in the industry, you have the best shot at being able to stay in the industry. But as you'd imagine at that point in time, it was totally unclear whether or not there would be an opportunity to stay in venture, you know, kind of back in 2003, 2004, when things were really still fairly quiet, only beginning to recover. And, you know, kind of there just weren't that many venture firms. Now, interestingly, I went to business school in 2004. And by the time I graduated, we were in another really awesome bull market, which was great. I got really fortunate. But also, in those late 2000s, there was the beginning of the emerging manager trend. It was slow, but you had, you know, first round and Union Square and Kefa and True Ventures getting started in this period of time, which gave us all ultimately the sort of confidence and conviction to you know kind of spin out of the firms we were at. And part of the reason I, that I had the audacity to believe that I could start my own firm. So anyway, it was an interesting progression, but I guess I never really totally lost faith in you know my ability to be in venture. But yeah, there was a period of time in business school where I said, at the very least, I should ask myself whether or not I should be doing something different and use this business school experience to explore that, which is what I did. And what was it like when
0: you raised your first fund? Can you take us behind the scenes of that first fund?
1: That's super brutal, like really not not fun at all for a variety of reasons. First of all, in 2012, when I started having those discussions, there really wasn't a very large emerging manager universe like i was one of a relatively small number of of managers i mean that changed a lot over time but that was the first piece the second piece was i had been a principal at the firm i left to start this fund not a partner and fundraising without that partner distinction was more challenging i think and then i i wanted to this to be a sector focused firm and my strategy thus didn't really fit for almost any institutional investor and the size of the first fund the target was so small that again there almost no institutional investor could invest in me so by definition i had to go to individuals and i went to some corporates and you know i was able you know fortunately to scrape together enough to sort of gather that first fund and and have it be you know kind of execute on an investment strategy but it's really first of all like I don't know if it's just, you know, my background growing up, or whatever, but it's really uncomfortable asking other people to part with their money, especially individuals, you know, and you don't realize at the time that like, it's actually a fairly normal thing to do in the venture ecosystem, but it's very uncomfortable if you haven't done it before. The second piece of that is once you get comfortable with asking people, you know, you have to also get comfortable with people telling you no, and not take it so personally that you feel defeated and, you know, demotivated. Once you get there, like actually life gets a lot easier. And you realize it's a numbers game. And if you have an interesting idea and you're reasonably persuasive, you know, going back to my earlier points, then you should be able to raise enough capital to do something. And hopefully with that capital, you can prove your strategy out a bit and get people excited about investing more the next time.
0: What do you think most people get wrong about what it's like to be a VC?
1: Historically, I think the belief was that the VC job was a really cushy, fun lifestyle job. And honestly, there might have been a version of this job that was that, but I've really never experienced that. I would describe, you know, kind of venture capital as primarily a sales job. You're really out there trying to pitch dollars to founders who oftentimes have, especially the best ones, have, you know, many other sources of dollars they could choose. And so, you know, coming up with a pitch and a differentiation, you know, relative to those other sources of dollars is, is really important. And so, first of all, it's not cushy. You do work a lot, and you know you're selling a commodity. It's a sales job, and it's, I think that isn't always what people think about when they maybe aspire to you know a career in venture capital, either early in their career or down the road. But there is a lot to love. I mean, it's a it's a it's a fun career if you love learning, and there is I don't know. It's, it's super dynamic. It's never a boring day. Truly, I, I can't remember. A day where I, I was like, wow, I really wish you know, kind of I had something to do today. It's, it's almost always the the opposite. It's almost always, I wish I had a few more minutes to think today.
0: And final couple of questions. As I was looking on your website earlier today, I saw there was a section for founders from underrepresented backgrounds and an email address that you know called them out to get in touch. Can you tell us a little bit more about that initiative? Sure.
1: When a lot of other people realized three years ago that we probably weren't doing a great job of attracting diverse deal flow. And you know we looked at our portfolio and didn't see a lot of diverse founders in our portfolio. And what occurred to us is that we were generating a lot of our deal flow or a lot of our investments were coming from proprietary deal flow we were seeing. And of course, a lot of the proprietary deal flow we were seeing were coming from people with experiences and backgrounds like ours. So they tended to look like us. Which it's not that those things are expressly bad. It's just that, you know, kind of you're obviously going to miss out on investing in folks who have different backgrounds who don't look like you. And what we learned is the first thing is we need to like track deal flow to figure out actually if we had some diverse deal flow, you know, kind of coming into us and you know, make sure we we had a sense for that. And after determining that we probably weren't seeing enough deal flow like that, we, you know, tried our best to create channels to us even ones as simple as just, you know, calling it out on our website, but like accelerators and conferences and events that we've helped to put on that really invite those sorts of founders to get to know us and to tell us, you know, kind of about their missions and their journeys and, you know, see if we might be part of that journey, because it is the case that like the natural sort of equilibrium or steady state will take you to folks that sort of have similar backgrounds and, you know, to you and, and the people in your network So you actually have to invest energy in order to break out of that, I think.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And final question, Dan, if founders are listening and they say, wow, I want to work with Dan, Dan sounds like the type of investor that I want to work with. Where should they go? How do they get in touch?
1: It's literally dan at commerce.vc. Just send an email. I will do my best to respond to them. I'm not perfect at that, of course, but we do our best to be responsive. The only caveat is if you're not in our industry focus my answer is always going to be, sorry, where it's just not a fit for us. So if somebody has a tech innovation for retail and financial services and wants to get in touch, it's just dan at commerce.vc. So you don't want to back my medical device company, you're saying? <laughs> I, w- I just wouldn't know how to even think about it.
0: <laughs> dan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I really enjoyed our conversation and I know our audience is going to as well. So really appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate you having me. <laughs>